Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are, of course, the one place to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've got loads going on this morning, an awful lot of news to get at. Obviously, we're going to keep an eye very closely on what's going on in the North Atlantic because we believe <clears throat> that at some point during the course of the next two to three hours, uh, the Mission Impossible, which has been searching for the Titanic sub, which has been missing now since Sunday, uh, <coughs> is actually going to run out of air. Uh, and it may well be that the people who are on board uh, may not be heard from again. However, uh, we will obviously be keeping you up to date <clears throat> with all the news that we can find on that. Uh, and as soon as we know anything, we will, of course, alert you. There are people out there searching for them. There are all sorts of sonic booms going around. There are all sorts of sonic boys going around. Um, but unfortunately, I'm afraid, as much as we would like to say, we will bring you good news as soon as it happens. It doesn't look very good for the people who are inside that submersible uh, who have been there for quite a few days now uh, without really anybody hearing from them at all. 03444991000. We're going to be speaking to Isabel Oakshot first up this morning. She's got plenty to say about the lockdown. She's got plenty to say about the COVID inquiry. And we'll be talking to her, of course, as well about a great many other things, including the fact that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have apparently agreed to hold a cage fight. Bizarrely, We'll also be talking about Clive Myrie, the BBC newsreader, uh, who was apparently pulled from presenting the news uh, last Friday night because he was also appearing as the host of Have I Got News For You, uh, during which he made several what you might regard as off-colour jokes about Boris Johnson. I don't mind people making jokes about Boris Johnson, but I'd rather they weren't actually reading the news on the BBC. But it shows you how the BBC still have got an awfully long way to go. Uh, before they can figure out what it is that they're supposed to be doing. We'll also be talking about lawless Britain coming up later on. Mike Neville joins us, former Metropolitan Police detective, because there's a record number of thefts now from convenience stores being reported. I'm getting stories this morning about fights on trains in the early hours of the morning, but also in rush hour morning trains as well. Uh, we're going to be also talking, of course, um, about what goes on with the economy because uh, Ashley Armstrong is going to join us at midday. The Bank of England expected to raise interest rates for the 13th time. Andrew Bailey, by the way, uh, should not be in the job of running the Bank of England. The Governor of the Bank of England is a very important job. It should be done by somebody who knows what they're doing. Andrew Bailey does not know what he's doing, uh, so much so that he is actually now being called the plank of England, because I think that's a far more uh, apt description of it. Rod Little will also talk to us as well. Uh, he's got lots to say about a great many things, including, of course, the lockdown COVID inquiry and what has gone wrong 
with the basic business of government in this country. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Call us. We will put your views to air because we care what you think. We're the only place that does care what you think because you tell us and we tell everybody else. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's another rather nice summer day out there. Um, imagine, uh, if you will, what it's like for those poor families of those missing in the submersible uh, deep down below the surface of the uh, North Atlantic, way down where it's zero degrees practically uh, in the water, in the murky depths, uh, down by where the Titanic um, grave is. There's an awful lot of people who have got a lot to say about this story. And some of the people who have been saying things about it, I think, have been pretty disrespectful, not only to the people who are in the submersible, but also to the memories of those who died uh, in the ship shipwreck that is the Titanic. But let's talk to Isabel Oakshot because it is a fascinating story. It's one of those stories that you can't really get away from, no matter what you may think of it. Um, it is just a tragic and almost in- impossible story to imagine. Isabel, very good morning to you. Morning. Yeah, it's absolutely gripping. I expect mm. that I'm far from alone this morning in being uh, absolutely led to put my phone on immediately. I woke up and checking to see if there's any updates. And unfortunately, it appears there's very little to report this morning. Nothing yeah. new, except we all know that the clock is more than ticking. I think they've got until uh, eight minutes past 12 or something pretty specific. Yes. Um, so it does feel as if there is vanishingly little chance of a happy ending on this. But, you know, we can all hope that there might yet be some kind of miracle. Yeah, and I think that's partly why these types of stories, when they don't come along very often, but they, whenever they do come along, why they're so gripping? Because I think we all wish there to be a happy ending, no matter how kind of pessimistic we are as individuals or as a human race. You always want there to be a happy ending. You want somebody to come in right at the end and go, here they are. Here's the answer. Here's the, here's the rescue. Yeah, and even if it's, you know, just some of them that mm. get out alive, that would be incredible. I mean, it certainly reminds me of the um, the boys stuck in the cave in Thailand and, you know, the world watched that with bated breath. And there was a miracle in that case, uh, thanks to extraordinary global efforts to get those boys out. Um, so, look, we, we don't know, um, but we can only pray that there might still be some kind of positive outcome. I think the debate that you mentioned just now about, um, you know, the respectfulness uh, towards those within that submersible, whether they were or weren't doing the right thing, there's been an awful lot of sanctimonious twaddle about that. Um, but also about whether it's right to continue sort of tourist expeditions to the Titanic is a really interesting one. Um, I'm probably with our colleague Piers Morgan, who I thought gave a very powerful monologue at the start of his show last night um, in praise, in in tribute to adventurers. Um, You know, he was arguing that without this spirit of adventure, we wouldn't really push any frontiers. You know, we'd just be sort of blobs of lard sitting around um, being commentators. Uh, these are brave souls. You know, they they signed waivers when they uh, boarded this submersible in mm. which it was 
set out very clearly uh, that the thing hadn't passed any regulatory checks and was pretty damn dangerous and that they might die and they did it anyway. Mm. And one of the fascinating elements of this is that psychology, isn't it? You know, we're all sort of sitting there thinking, would we, wouldn't we? You couldn't have paid me $250,000 to go on board one of those things. No, I mean, I think that's the thing about going underwater. I mean, it's when people say, oh, well, you know, you take your life in your hands every time you get on a plane. Well, yes, but it's a slightly uh, less risky occupation given that planes fly all the time. Uh, and while there may have been quite a few of these missions down to see the, 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 the depths of the Titanic wreckage, um, you know, it's a very, it's, you can't get out of it. You know, it's a bit like being in a helicopter versus being in a plane. If the helicopter goes down, uh, you can't, there's nothing you can do. In a plane, there's always something. But underwater, there's nothing you can do. No, and that's that's the the sort of terror of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's similar to the psychology, I suppose, of extreme mountaineering. Mm. And that zone, you know, a certain part after a certain altitude at Everest, known as the death zone, where, you know, there is no rescue possible. Um, and yet people do it anyway. And, you know, the statistics aren't, aren't actually that great for, mm. for mountaineering in Everest. A lot of people do every year die yeah. from that. Nonetheless, there is clearly still that thrill of, of making it. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. And we hope, as, as you say, to bring some good news before the end of this show. But um, it's very difficult to predict if anything uh, good will come from it. Uh, so let's talk uh, moving on to, uh, to the lockdown and lessons that we've learned from that. Um, lockdown damaged a generation was the word on the front page of the Telegraph yesterday about uh, from a former chief medical officer. Um, isn't it amazing um, Isabel, that so many people are now saying what we were saying for a very long time when nobody was saying it. Yes, but I'll take those small victories now over them not acknowledging it at all. Mm. There are still, unfortunately, a vast number of people who doggedly refuse to accept what is now overwhelmingly obvious, mm. which is that lockdowns were a catastrophe for this country. And I'm mildly heartened that some really senior figures, uh, Dame Sally Davis, who was chief medical officer well before the pandemic, are now openly acknowledging uh, this, the scale of the damage that lockdowns inflicted on this country. Uh, apparently, there is evidence for from Sir Chris Whitty um, that to the COVID inquiry in his written submission. Uh, I understand that he has acknowledged that there was insufficient um, attention paid mm. to the wider economic. And when I say economic, that just doesn't mean whether people can make money or not, but the wider economic impacts of lockdown, which actually affect people's health too, as we know. So if as a result of this first phase of the inquiry, we have a number of people who do now acknowledge openly, senior people, that those uh, who are still doubting the case will listen to uh, that lockdowns were disastrous, then that is something um, that I think is positive to have come from it. Yes, I mean, I think so. I mean, we've been sort of slightly, I would say, blindsided so far by some of the rather dull um, uh, evidence that's been given by David Cameron, George Osborne and, and his ilk. Apparently, Chris Whitty is up this morning, which might be a bit more interesting. But I'm slightly worried about the form of questioning that's being taken. And it doesn't appear to be terribly forensic. It doesn't appear to be terribly kind of uh, even pointed in one direction or another. It just seems to be rather, rather sort of dim witted. 
Well, yes, um, and I was, um, I mean, I am concerned about the the way in which certain contributors and core participants have been allowed unchallenged to to state, for example, that lockdowns, um, you know, to, dis- to kind of sideline the role of lockdowns, as it were, and concentrate on highly political questions, such as whether so-called austerity mm. uh, he played a key role in the scale of the disaster of the pandemic. I mean, I said this last week, I think the use of the word austerity, it's highly political. It gives away instantly where that person is coming from on the political spectrum. Uh, And it was good to see earlier this week, actually, the former Chancellor uh, George Osborne challenging that notion, the notion that if we'd only had a bigger state and even more money into the NHS, somehow the outcomes from the pandemic would have been better. It's complete nonsense. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, that's the other thing that you look at uh, with hindsight, where you say, you know, as, as much money as there was available was made available and even more money was then invented to make that available as well. We've heard this morning as the Bank of England attempt to try and convince us they're doing a good job of stewarding the economy. You know, they've invented hundreds of billions of pounds that they've just given away um, and nobody knows where it's ever going to come back. And and guess where that's landed us all? You know, very, very dire position. And people shouldn't forget that actually the NHS continued to have record funding. as did research into infectious diseases. Um, However, just being a little bit positive here, I do think a few interesting things have come out of the inquiry this week, but we should remember that certain individuals only ever entrench their positions. Look at Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary, was in that job for many, many years, um, should have been pandemic planning, didn't bother turning up to meetings, is now arguing that actually maybe we should have gone harder earlier on. I mean, Jeremy Hunt behind the scenes, uh, and again, we know this from our Talk TV colleague Nadine Dorries, was pushing for more Chinese-style restrictions Mm. in this country, as if that would have somehow made the outcome better rather than horrendously worse. Um, So on it goes. Um, It's clearly very difficult for anyone to follow hour by hour, because bits of it are tedious. Uh, But I have some hope that some intelligence may come out of it. I wouldn't expect too much um, in terms of revelations from Sir Chris Whitty today, uh, because his job was chief medical officer. He wasn't there to assess whether uh, the economic impact was worth it, as it were. Um, From what I've seen of his WhatsApp message messages, he did his job description. It was the politicians that failed to look at the overall picture. Yes, I think that's right. Isabel, stay, stay with us if you would. <coughs> Excuse me, if you would. Uh, we've got a couple of other things to talk to you about. Isabel Oakeshott is right here with us on Talk TV. We'll be back with more after this. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Isabel Oakeshott. A couple of interesting things coming up. Uh, England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and former Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance are due to give evidence today on the COVID inquiry's eighth day of public hearings. We'll bring that to you uh, as soon as it happens. But a couple of sort of personality-driven uh, stories to talk about, Isabel. Elon Musk, I've, I, I find it hard to believe this is actually true. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg apparently have agreed to hold some kind of cage fight. I am so excited about this. I want tickets right now. Um, I I don't know whether it really happened. Love to think that it would. There's an actual venue for this thing in Vegas and a bunch of very serious news outlets 
are reporting it as something that's definitely going to happen. Um, but, you know, who knows? Billionaires, they, their cage fight challenges come and go, no doubt. Yes. Um, the question is, which one of them would win? Now, Musk is quite a bit older than Zuckerberg. Yeah. Very different physiques, and Musk openly saying um, that he never really, never really trains or works out. But he does have a special fight-winning technique, apparently, which is called the whale, which simply invo- involves flattening his opponent and lying on top of them and doing nothing else. <laughs> I, I mean, mean <laughs> if you were to ask me about styles, I would imagine that Mark Zuckerberg is probably quite a goody two-shoes and would just wait for the Marcus of Queensbury rules and sort of stand there. Yeah, Whereas maybe. Musk, I think, would probably be a He's really, really there. dirty fighter and, oh, yeah. you know, and just would win at all costs. Yeah, I think absolutely. My money would, would be on Musk in this one. But I'm I'm absolutely envisaging a really fun trip to Vegas to watch this. Yes. The thing <laughs> I find fascinating about Zuckerberg is that he spent all of his life creating this meta world, this metaverse, where you can do anything you want in a virtual space. But he actually clearly craves real experience, as I think we all do. I mean, I can't imagine anything worse. When people say to me, well, never mind, you don't have to go to Tuscany. Just go into this box and you can pretend you're in Tuscany and you can eat the food and taste the wine and it'll be just as if you were there. Well, no, I want to go there, thanks. Well, we can't be sure that Zuckerberg won't send some kind of avatar or something (laughs) to, to, to do the fight instead of him. Um, I mean, look, they could make a lot of money by selling tickets to this thing. Well, I'm um, sure they don't really need any more money, though, do they? Well, I, I mean, the thing about billionaires is that they don't think to themselves, oh, well, I've got enough money now, so I won't bother making any more. <laughs> that is not the mentality of a billionaire. Having worked for a few of them, they go on making money. That is their thing. Right up until their very, very, very last breath, they're yes. still thinking about it. Yes, I'm sure that's right. Um, speaking of people who are slightly confused about their identity, Clive Myrie uh, is trending today uh, on Twitter because the Times have written a story about how he was pulled, apparently, from delivering the news last Friday night because he was also appearing as the host of How I Got News For You. Now, I don't really mind if he wants to be the host of How I Got News For You, but surely you can't do both, can you? You can't be a newsreader for the BBC and make jokes about Boris Johnson. Well, and here we go again. It's hardly the first case of this, is it? There was another, there was a female newsreader that, you know, was expressed her relief at some anti-Tory or anti-Brexit thing not that long ago. They don't learn these people, do they? I no. mean, you are either an impartial BBC employee reading the news or you're a political commentator. I know which I am. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you wouldn't be uh, reading the news anytime soon uh, because you've got views which you're perfectly entitled to have, uh, as indeed is he. But he's not entitled to have them and be a newsreader. No, um, but you know, the BBC just doesn't get this, do they? It just on and on. We know now it's, the, the evidence is overwhelming about the institutional bias yeah. within the organisation. Um, and these stories just keep coming back. Um, that said, we haven't heard from Gary Lineker for a while, have we? He's been very quiet, funnily enough, since the uh, since the illegal migrant story seems to have sort of uh, become a reality, as opposed to just yeah. some uh, figment of everybody's imagination on the left who think that everybody on the right has just made it up. You know, they're suddenly actually realising that it's damaging the country now and we need to do something about it. 
I don't think he's realising that at all. I think he's just, um, I don't know, either on a holiday or um, somebody's <laughs> told him to go back in his box for a short period. I'm sure he will re-emerge no time soon. Oh, I'm sure. I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath on that one at all. Let's talk finally about um, Brussels, um, a place that we used to mention a lot more than we do now. But apparently the European Union has agreed, believe it or not, to the intrusive surveillance of journalists to identify their sources under new draft legislations, uh, which is going to be demanded by France. So basically they're going to be spying on journalists from the European Union. Marvellous, isn't it? I mean, key question here, can we opt out of this? I mean, now we're technically no longer in the EU, though the government doesn't always seem to realise this. Um, does this affect the UK? Do you know, Mike? I haven't... Um, I, don't believe that, I don't believe that it does necessarily, but it could, because obviously if you're a journalist going into the EU, presumably you will be subject to the same laws that everybody else is subject to. So, so perhaps you will have this spyware kind of affixed to your device. Yeah, I, mean, look, I don't trust our government on this anyway. We now know um, in very colourful form what they did um, in terms of their operations mm. against free-speaking journalists during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, they, they won't stop at anything. You know, they employed a counter-Daesh propaganda unit in Number 10, uh, normally used to tackle actual terrorist threats, to tackle people that they didn't, um, who had the wrong views. So... You know, we've got to be very vigilant against this stuff. Um, up until now, at any rate, it's been quite difficult for um, the government to latch on to journalist phones. You know, you have to go through a hell of a process of authorization um, with the intelligence agencies to get access to journalist telephone records. That's really important that that's maintained. Uh, and I hope that there's no erosion of that. Well, let's hope, let's hope not. But it's very, very difficult to, to know whether or not uh, they would actually uh, be able to impose it upon British reporters who are working in the EU. But I think it, it would let governments do it. Um, and who knows whether our government, knowing what we know about them, as you say, maybe they've done it already. Indeed. Well, it sounds to me um, yet another reason to keep well away from anything to do with Brussels. Uh, absolutely right. Isabel, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor there uh, with the latest on the COVID inquiry and, of course, also uh, on the fascinating story and the tale of woe uh, that is happening and unfolding even as we speak uh, over in the North Atlantic where uh, the missing submersible uh, is still missing. And it's running out of air and it's running out of time. And on the front pages of the papers this morning, that is very much the mood music that you can see. Um, and we will keep you updated, of course, with any developments as they happen. We're keeping a very close eye on the Coast Guards over in America. We're keeping a very close eye on all of the uh, dirigible uh, uh, devices and, of course, all of the ships that are wandering around trying to find any clue as to whether they can track this particular submarine. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots to do this morning. We're going to talk about a great many stories, of course, uh, coming up, not least uh, as time appears to be running out uh, to save the people who are in this missing submarine. And uh, we'll be, keep you abreast of all the developments that we know of uh, as far as um, what's happening in North America, what's happening in the US of A, what's happening in places like Boston, Woods Hole Institute. All of the people who are out looking, uh, desperately trying to find some kind of sign of life or some kind of sign of anything at all. Uh, 
uh, on this submarine front. Uh, we'll be keeping you abreast of all of that, of course, as well. Also, we want your stories today about lawless Britain, because there's a report out in which it says that convenience stores are now being robbed on a very, very regular basis. There's been a record number of thefts from convenience stores. And those are, of course, those ty types of stores which are on the street corners uh, of different neighbourhoods, particularly of quite poor neighbourhoods, places where there's not an awful lot of money, but where also the people who are running those shops um, have got a pretty small margin of profit that they can make and they're losing millions and millions and millions of pounds. We're also going to be talking about Britain on the edge, which we've mentioned many, many times on this show, because this morning, this very morning, uh, I was told by one of my work colleagues that he was coming in to work on a train and a fight broke out on the train in rush hour in plain sight of everybody else and nobody cared. Everybody just got out of the way and let them get on with it which I think is something really, really serious to worry about. Also, we'll bring you uh, Chris Whitty and possibly uh, Sir Patrick Valance as well. Both of those men giving evidence to the COVID inquiry this morning uh, on the eighth day of public hearing. So we'll bring you that as soon as we know anything about it as well. 0344 499 1000. We'll take your calls too. Ryan Ramsey uh, joins us now. He's an ex-submarine captain. We spoke to him the other day uh, about the search uh, and recovery mission, uh, which is being put underway over in uh, the North Atlantic, above the Titanic wreckage where uh, many of these people have gone many times, actually, strangely enough, that we didn't know, many more times than we did know. Uh, this one particularly, though, has not come back and it's still missing and nobody really knows if there's any hope of finding it before the air is supposed to run out sometime after midday. Ryan, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. When you spoke to us last time, you were able to give us a pretty good insight into what it's like to be beneath the surface of the sea and how dangerous it is and how, you know, really, really unpredictable it is as well. Um, I mean, clearly, we've now been told that there's only a few hours of oxygen left in this missing Titan submersible. Um, the, I suppose the search has been going on now for a, a good 48 hours or so intensively, both above uh, the surface of the sea and below it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a desperately sad situation, isn't it? It really is, and um, a, a, a tragedy. And there's not not much more that uh, people can do about it. Unfortunately, you got the most capable units uh, now on on station attempting to search for the uh, submersible, but the scale of that search is is going to be large. Um, the complexity of that search is significant. You can use sonars for some part of it, but actually for identification of the submersible itself, it probably needs to be another submersible to be able to do that. And if you look at where that submersible is in relation to um, the Titanic and the wreckage of the Titanic, classification of um, that submersible al alongside another piece of wreckage is, is extremely difficult. Yeah. I mean, um, as, as, as the search goes on throughout the course of this morning and, and into the next few hours, I mean, at which point will, will they call it off? Will, will they just keep going in the hope that they'll find something? Well, safety of life at sea, uh, which all uh, mariners subscribe to, is basically to, to continue searching until you reach the conclusion that there, that there is now no longer a uh, no longer a rescue mission, but a salvage mission. And I suspect that they'll keep on going for a, for another couple of days, even though um, even though they they suspect that the air runs out or the oxygen runs out uh, just after midday. Right, um, and and I mean. We still don't really know whether the submersible is in fact below the surface of the, the, the top of the sea or whether it's actually even bobbing around um, already above the sea. I was astonished to learn yesterday, which I didn't know, uh, that the people inside it have been more or less kind of um, welded inside the vessel. They can't get out. 
without somebody from the outside helping them to do so. That's correct. So the hatch hatch is shut from the outside. So the helplessness of the um, five people inside the um, submersible is is significant. I think if it had been on the surface, though, um, the the maritime patrol aircraft that have been searching, they've got exceptional capability. They would have detected it by now. So on a, on a personal level, I don't think that's particularly the case. Right. Um, it's, it's either on the bottom or something. Um, something's happened on the way down. Yeah, it would seem so. Because I would have thought, as you say, if there is um, as much attention being paid to the surface of the of the, of the water, you would you would think radar would pick up something even as small as that. Correct. If you think that the maritime patrol aircraft are predominantly there to search for submarines and it's searching for submarine periscopes, so the definition of their radar, it, it should enable them to find it on the surface. Right. And, I mean, obviously this will have a knock-on effect, won't it, on the kinds of, I suppose, missions that are run from this point on to see the Titanic, to take people down there. Um, do you anticipate there being more rules and regulations kind of being put in place? I think a lot of people have been surprised uh, how lax the rules and regulations have been. Well, I think there are rules and regulations in place. So if you look at um, all the other submersibles that are arriving on site, they've gone through a standard regulation process to make sure that they're capable of doing what they're doing. This one, from, from what I've read and what I've seen so far, appears not to have undergone the same uh, scrutiny that those ones have undergone. But, I mean, all this will come out in the subsequent investigation uh, after this tragedy. So hopefully lessons are learned. Um, and I know the maritime community always looks to learn lessons. So lessons will be learned from this and they'll apply those accordingly. Yeah. And technically speaking, and I know this may sound like a bit of a stupid question after all these days, but I'm assuming that the Titanic is in international waters, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So um, most most nations have what's called a 12 mile limit, which is their territorial waters and everything oh. else outside of that 12 mile limit is, is international waters. And so who sort of polices that, if you like? Points of um, the, 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 You've got international maritime law, which covers one one part of it. Um, and then also um, navies policing as well uh, around not just territorial waters but also in international waters right. um but for regulation wise it's it, it comes down to the regulation of the particular country that mm. allows the vessel to go to sea and as far as that noise was concerned yesterday people were reporting that they'd heard some kind of knocking noise or some kind of tapping noise i mean that doesn't seem to have led to anything new really does it no, it doesn't. I think the the um, the initial report was a bit more vague than we, we it ended up being reported. Yeah, it may have been tapping. Now, if you'd have heard those sounds, you'd be and they were every thirty minutes. You'd be continuing to search for those. So to have only heard a couple of those and then nothing more, right. um, I think it was more hope than um, potential. Yes, I'm afraid so. Ryan, thank you so much for talking to us. It's very difficult, uh, obviously, to, to, to look ahead to what might happen in just a couple of hours' time. Uh, Ryan Ramsey, their ex-submarine captain, uh, on the news that still no news, basically, uh, from Newfoundland, no news from Boston, no news from the North Atlantic of any kind, uh, suggesting that uh, the submersible is not sitting on top of the water, has not resurfaced, and is probably somehow uh, unbelievably down below uh, where the Titanic is. It could be on the, on this ocean floor. It's pitch black down there, so it's a highly unlikely thing that they would be uh, able to discover that it was even there, never mind be able to rescue it. But supposedly, according to what we know, uh, the air will run out 
inside of that submersible vessel uh, sometime around midday today, uh, our time. So we'll keep you updated, of course, as much as we can. Let's go to the phones now, though, and talk about the state of the economy and the mortgage market. Jenny is in High Wycombe. Hi, Jenny. Hello there, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. Lovely to speak to you yes. again. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. I mean, when I, I'm now in my late 50s, right, and when I um, bought my uh, first flat in London, I was in my mid-20s, right. single girl, bought it on my own. Uh, so we're going back to the late 80s now. Right. And the interest rates, when I bought, were 15.5%. I worked every single minute that God spent in order to be able to buy that place. And now we are told that we need to help people out. You know, no, I'm yeah. sorry. If you can't afford your place, you have to sell. Right. Quite simple. Well, I've I mean, been saying this. People have looked at me as if I'm some kind of mad maniac, monster person, because I've been saying exactly that for the best part of the last couple of years. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry if you can't afford the mortgage rate that's gone up now. You should have expected it might go up. You should have expected that it wasn't uh, absolutely a guarantee of you making loads of money that you could hand on to your children. That's not the way it works, is it? Precisely, precisely. I literally worked every single minute God sent in order to be able to buy my place on my own as a single girl. Mm. And I tell you, it wasn't easy. And yes, interest rates were at 15.5%. Okay, now I know they're very low, and that's the major issue. That is the mistake of the rubbish, useless, successive governors of the Bank of England. Yeah, well, the Bank of England has been absolutely useless. They're, called, they're calling them in the sun today, the plank of England, which I think is about right. You can see them. Yeah, and uh, who was it? Who was it who made um, who made the, the uh, Bank of England uh, independent? It was oh, Gordon it was Brown. Was it? it was Gordon Brown. Yes. Thank you very much, Mr. Brown. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, Iron but... the Iron Chancellor, you know, as he's rather laughably called, absolutely useless. He lorded it over one of the worst financial collapses the world has ever seen. Uh, it's based in Edinburgh. Thanks very much indeed to the Royal Bank of Scotland and Nat West, who parcelled up their uh, their debt in so many different complicated ways that it basically meant that the world's economies fell down around their ears. Indeed. So now I'm afraid those who you know can't afford their mortgages, you have to suck it up. You have to move to somewhere less less nice yeah. or get a smaller place or get your parents to help you out or something. There are other ways around it. It is not for the rest of us to help you out. If no. you cannot afford your place, sell it. Simple as that. Exactly. Exactly right. And if that means that the, the market price of houses comes crashing down around us, then good, because then more people will be able to pick them up on the way back up. That's called democracy and that's called a market Yes, exactly right. I couldn't agree more. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. As you see, uh, we're looking at the Bank of England, Threadneedle Street there, the city of London, uh, the place where all sorts of decisions are made over the course of time. And there's going to be another one made today. Uh, the Bank of England around midday expected to raise interest rates for the 13th time in a row. What on earth are they doing? What on earth is Andrew Bailey doing? I'll tell you, coming up next, right here on Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up in this hour, we've got lots going on. Obviously, we're keeping an eye uh, on the clock because as the clock ticks down, uh, it looks as though very much, unfortunately, for those people searching uh, for any sign of life or any sign of anything uh, over in the North Atlantic, uh, time would appear to be running out. According to the uh, calculations that we've been told about and according to the news that we've been given, uh, sometime after midday, uh, whoever is inside still inside that submersible uh, machine that went down to the depths of the Atlantic to try and see what the wreckage of the Titanic looked like close up uh, will run out of air. 
there will be no more air inside that particular submersible. So unfortunately, if anybody's still inside it, and if anybody is still able uh, to be alive inside it, uh, they're gonna find it very, very difficult uh, to find a way to stay that way, I'm afraid. But we'll bring you up to date with all of it as it happens. Obviously, the search continues uh, over in the United States of America, uh, out of Boston, uh, out of Woods Hole Institute, uh, out of Canada and Newfoundland as well. Uh, all sorts of Coast Guard operations going on, all sorts of planes flying around, all sorts of uh, sonar buoys being dropped into the water. Everything that can be done is being done. Uh, but will it actually result in anything positive happening? We can only keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. Coming up in this hour, though, uh, Mike Neville's going to join us. He's a former Metropolitan Police detective, of course. He's going to talk to us about uh, private policing uh, having some kind of boom in London because there's such a rise in crime, uh, not only in retail areas where shops are, but also uh, in burglaries, of course, as well. We're also going to be talking about Britain on the Edge. We talked about it a few weeks ago, shortly before uh, that terrible incident in Nottingham just last week. We also talked about how people are just really, really kind of angry. People are really on the edge of violence all the time. I had a, uh, a colleague this morning tell me a story of a fight that broke out on the train that he was coming into work on this morning, which is unheard of. Something that you wouldn't have even thought about. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. A few years ago, but now is it almost an everyday occurrence. Uh, you've got people being stabbed in the street. Uh, you had a guy running amok in a hospital yesterday. Uh, you're having people getting mugged by men on mopeds who are crashing into cars and basically trying to do you on an insurance scam. There doesn't seem to be any end to it. Let's talk now to Mike Noble and find out what it's all about. Mike, a very good morning to you. 
Yeah, good morning to you, Mike. Um, it's a tragic, it, broken Britain, I think we can do. Well, it is. Part it, of that, it, it, it genuinely is. And I mean, I kind of raised this issue a couple of weeks ago, as I say, before that terrible incident in Nottingham where uh, three people lost their lives to, to, to a maniac who was wandering around with a, with a knife in his hand and driving a car at people and all of that. But just generally speaking, the population is suffering uh, in one way, shape or form, um, not least the, uh, the retail businesses of this country. Uh, we're here today that convenience stores uh, are having a record number of thefts, record numbers of stuff being taken, and even just by anecdotal evidence. I mean, I see people shoplifting practically every time I go to the shops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no wonder people are turning to uh, private uh, companies. You've got uh, Dave McKelvey's uh, uh, private policing, the, the My Bobby's scheme. You've got things like Face Watch, which is uh, looks for uh, computerised facial recognition to identify uh, people who are known shoplifters. Mm. Uh, but the tragedy of this, of course, is that one, if the police set arbitrary limits, uh, £50, pounds, £250, pounds, the drug addicts know this and they'll steal uh, that amount of, uh, or less than that amount of money. And the sad thing for shop workers and the security staff there is that these thieves often feel they're entitled to take the stuff. And if they challenge, if they're challenged, they start pulling out knives and all this sort of stuff. So it's a real slippery slope, Mike, where if you let one kind of crime occur, then the next level up. So you go from uh, shoplifting, you go to burglaries and you feel entitled to do it. Now, we should have enough police officers and we should have enough CCTV to nail these people because it's not people doing one offs. These shoplifters are doing uh, stealing hundreds of thousands of pounds per day and mm. they should be nailed for this crime but too often they just get away scot-free right i mean i've even seen people filling up a basket in sainsbury's or somewhere uh, and literally just running out the door with it yeah that you're absolutely right because and they, they well know that uh, they can get away with all this and it's um it's a strange we live in a strange society where people can just steal and and have absolutely no fear that anything will happen to mm. them Exactly right. And I mean, if you are a citizen, I suppose, of, of, of the land and you, you're not connected in any way to a shop, I mean, what, what's the law if, if you would decide to, in, to intervene? I'm not recommending necessarily that people should. But if you try to stop somebody from stealing something from a shop, are you putting yourself in danger? Are you putting yourself at risk of prosecution or anything? Well, I mean, every citizen is entitled to, to make a, a citizen's arrest if somebody else has committed a crime. But in these circumstances, I'd really counsel against that. You know, if you see somebody, you know, it's just stabbed somebody, it does some, let's say somebody's done something wicked crime and you feel brave enough and yeah. strong enough to intervene. But I wouldn't be advising that people get in, intervene if somebody's stealing meat or, mm. or anything like that. Perhaps tell the shopkeeper what they've seen. But there's too much of a risk of people being stabbed with knives or pierced with uh, dirty needles mm. and stuff because a lot of this shoplifting goes on to fuel. Uh, drug addiction and yeah. things like that. And yeah. what, we're just allowing people who are persistent and prolific criminals to get away with it, and it's got to stop. And it's easy in a way to stop if the police manage their assets properly. All these people are caught on CCTV. When I was at the Mets, we were nailing people for 40 or more crimes uh, off CCTV, and therefore they could be taken to uh, court and they received jail sentences. And this is what they need to, to have to stop them doing this and make communities safer. Well, there's got to be a deterrent, hasn't there? And at the moment, there just isn't one. Because I'm told as well by people that quite often you'll go to your local pub on any given day or any given night and a guy turns up with a sort of hold all full of steak. 
and and starts handing it out uh, as if it's uh, yeah. as if it's candy, you know, and says you can have this for a fiver, then you can have that for a, you know, and they're actually making money off it. Well, one of the most one of the worst sort of criminal enterprises, well, almost amusing, was there was a rough pub in 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 uh, Pimlico uh, near a nice uh, M and S uh, garage, right? And you would go in there and order nice food off the menu, and this then the uh, the landlord would tar some uh, drug addicts in the back to go and shoplift what you'd <laughs> ordered. It was an absolutely amazing. incredible. Uh, scheme yeah. but of course it's not a good scheme if it's your um you're you're the shop owner and of course we all have to pay because the more that gets stolen the shopkeepers have to make up the profit and then they put the prices up so but the key thing for me is it's the the way that uh, you know shoplifting has almost been uh legalized you, know, yeah. you can get away with it the shopkeepers don't report it unless they've you know got something on the ground and they're actually holding on to them so the police might come right the but then you get burglaries where, you know, one in 20 burglaries are solved. This is just crazy. You know, we should be doing better than this in a civilised hmm. society. It's just not good enough. People should feel safe on the streets and in their homes. Well, exactly right. Because normally speaking, whenever they do catch people who have been, saying um, sort of doing a spate of burglaries in a particular street, quite often they tend to live in the actual same street that they're, that they're breaking into all the houses in. Well, yes, yeah, so people, you know, if you're a drug actor, whatever, you don't travel very far. These are not sophisticated offenders. These are people who still leave finger marks 120 or more years mm. after fingerprints were first used. Yeah. So they're not very difficult to catch. 40% of households have got CCTV or ring doorbells mm. and that sort of stuff. So we're not talking Sherlock Holmes here. But what needs to happen, and I keep, I've said this time and time on this show, that the Home Secretary needs to focus the police on these things and, and we hear lots of rhetoric about we want the police to focus on crime now i went on to a county police force website yesterday to assess their performance in catching burglars and thieves right. and i couldn't find any of that i could find out however how many male and female officers there were and what color they were mm. and how many stop and searches they've done but i'm frankly not interested in that i'm interested in how many burglars thieves robbers and rapists have been caught right. but the whole police focus for 20 years has been on the wrong things and the home secretary could turn this round by saying right stop all this nonsense we're not interested anymore in in, in diversity quotas and whatever else we're simply interested mm. in are you making places safer by catching criminals and putting them before the courts? Yes. But the answer is, I'm afraid, not. No, they're not. And Rishi Sunak talks a good game, talks about it all the time, making the streets safer, making sure that more people are arrested more uh, quickly. And, you know, the Tory ministers that get wheeled out from time to time continue to spout this mantra that, oh, crime's actually going down. Well, it's not. It visibly is not, because we can see that it's not going down. We can see that it's actually more uh, there available for us to, to witness more than it's ever been because I think the problem for a lot of people is the brazen quality now of these people who want to commit crime. You know, they don't bother waiting till night falls and they smash the window and take something out of it. They just walk in during broad daylight and walk out with the stuff and don't even they're not even breaking uh, speed. They're not even, you know, breaking um, a, a sweat. They're just walking out, harrying the stuff, which everybody can see. You're absolutely right. And, and as I say, they're challenged, then they start pulling knives out because they feel entitled to do it. But the whole system is broken. And I, I dealt recently, I was on the show recently with about a young black guy who was who was stabbed by another black man. So yeah. they often, this is unimportant, isn't it? People just, it's a poor man, he's a worker, a worker, he's dead. 
people. When you looked into the suspect, he'd been caught with a 10-inch knife before uh, as a teenager. He'd been given a caution. Then he'd been caught again with a big bag of drugs and another big knife, and uh, but treated as a victim of of, uh, modern-day slavery as part of county lines. Then he's released again, and then he sticks a 10-inch knife into another man. And it's just people see this, and the whole system is, whether it's the police being woke, the, the courts are influenced by uh, liberalism and not giving out proper sentences and the like, the magistrates. And then the government takes some of the rap because it's no good being conservative and then setting uh, guidelines that too often people don't go to prison. Because right. they say that prison doesn't work, but you know what? They can't burgle my house, they can't rape people, they can't steal from shops while they're locked up in a cell. That's right. the basic no, exactly right. And what would you advise people to do? You know, you mentioned ring doorbells. Is it worth having one of those, or do they not even care whether you've got one of those or not? Well, I think in any with any opportunity that you can put a thief or burglar off, it may well deter them from doing it. So anything that works that you think... And you absolutely feel safe. And one of the things that people do, though, if they are burgled, the police might not want to look at the footage, but mm. the victim may well do that and just feel some like, release that they've done something and supplied the police with an image of, of, of the criminal. So I think anything to deter proper locks, CCTV, will, will will help people. If it makes you feel safer in your home, then please do that to, 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 so you have that security. Absolutely right. Mike, thanks very much indeed. Mike Neville, former Metropolitan Police detective there. On the record number of thefts from convenience stores, uh, the number of sex predators who have been uh, basically kept um, on a list at the National Crime Agency. Private policing is booming as well because more and more people are hiring their own police force to either patrol their road, their residential street, or to patrol uh, a shop that they own. But if you own a shop and you've got a story for us, we'd love to hear it because... We know that there's an awful lot of shoplifting going on. We know that the people who are doing the shoplifting don't care about being caught because they're so brazen about doing it in the first place. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We'll take some calls coming up very shortly because we know lots of you want to talk about an awful lot of things to do with mortgages, funnily enough, because coming up uh, in the next hour, well, coming up at the top of the hour, actually, at midday, uh, we're going to be going live to the Bank of England because they are allegedly uh, going to put up interest rates yet again for the 13th time in a row. Would you believe? A plank of England is what we were calling Andrew Bailey, the man who makes that decision, uh, helped on by various other members of the Bank of England. But it really is an absolute and utter shambles over there. Uh, We'll see whether or not uh, they're going to make anything change when it comes to the state of our nation's economy, because at the moment the economy is not doing terribly well. What is going on, though, as well as that, is the COVID inquiry, of course. Uh, later on today, we're supposed to be seeing Chris Whitty and former Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance. They're supposed to be giving give evidence to the COVID inquiry uh, on the eighth day of public hearings. But we haven't as yet seen either of them, and we'll bring that to you as soon as we can. Right now, though, let's talk to Arabella Skinner, who's from Us For Them, uh, an organisation that has doggedly uh, charted exactly where the government went wrong particularly with regard uh, to closing schools, particularly with regard to the way that children were treated, particularly with regard to things like homework. And the other problem that an awful lot of children faced during lockdown was just the isolation of it all. And so far, we've learned very little from the COVID inquiry about any of that stuff. Arabella, very good morning to you. 
Morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, for talking to us. I mean, I've been a bit disappointed thus far with the uh, the COVID inquiry. It doesn't appear to have kind of given me anything uh, that I wanted to know. It hasn't sort of revealed anything that, that I would have wanted to ask. And, and it's all been rather pedestrian so far, hasn't it? I think you're absolutely right, Mike. I think one of the things we have to remember that this is only the very, very first bit of the COVID inquiry. Yeah. They're only interested in pandemic planning. What was the planning process? We don't even know when they're going to talk about children and education. Right. They've announced six modules. The sixth one starts in oh, mid-2020. Um, and children still are not included Mm. our children will be you children who were affected going into secondary school probably won't even have a module for them until they leave university it's utterly ridiculous isn't it Uh, just yeah and why is that who made that decision well if you remember back to uh sort of 18 months ago when the terms of reference actually came out children weren't even included in the terms of reference um and ask them with other people challenged this and they added children in but this really comes back to what we felt was a fundamental issue throughout the whole pandemic no one was interested in children no one was thinking about children and no one was thinking about what the ramifications of the decisions that were made were actually happening on children and adults. Um, Dame Sally said, we didn't plan for a lockdown. Mm. Well, if you didn't plan for a lockdown, you needed to look and see what the damage was and and look at that in detail and see and make decisions based on what that was happening. Well, exactly right, because one of the things that I think we all are concerned with is that if there were to be another pandemic, and everybody seems to think there will be one at some point, I'm Mm. not so sure myself, um, you'd want to be sure that you don't make the same mistakes that they made by locking everything down when they didn't need to. Absolutely. You're you're absolutely right there, Mike. Uh, And one of the things that I find most depressing is that we keep saying, oh, look at these figures we've got. You know, 40% up in self-harm in teenage girls. We've got 40% up in eating disorders. We've got 1.7 million persistently absent children mm. from school. Then they go, oh, we didn't know this was going to happen. We did know this was going to happen. You go back to February 20 when they were talking about different things. The school closures were not on the agenda. But when they started talking about it, they said this was one of the risks. July 20, there was a big piece of work by the, done by the Department of Health looking at risks and benefits. They talked about this as a possibility. November 20, uh, SPY-B, one of the planning, the behavioural psychologists, plus the Department for Education, did a massive piece of work mm. looking at what the implications were for the, school, the original school closures. Mm. They said more children will die from suicide than die from COVID this year. And yet we shut down schools again. That's what I find so unforgivable about this process. Yeah. And the thing that worries me slightly even more than what happened under the Tories is that mm-hmm. Starmer and the Labour Party would have probably done it for longer and would have done it Absolutely. Uh, and kept it on for longer because he never wanted to lift the, uh, uh, the ban on, on schools closing, did he? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of backtracking going on at the moment. Um, A lot of the media are talking about saying we knew this was happening. This is awful. This is terrible. We need to do something about it. And with a few honourable exceptions, and I would include yourself in that, like very, very, very few people Mm. were talking about this and talking about this as as an issue. Yeah. And I saw it firsthand because I had two teenage boys Mm. um, who are now 16 and 18, but who were sort of 16 and 14. Um, And I mean, I was at the point where I was going down to see them at the weekend and saying, 
go out and hang around on a street corner, drink some cider, you know, go and do something because yeah. they were just sitting around at home kind of twiddling their thumbs. They didn't have any work to do. There was hardly any homework yeah. given out. They were told, well, you can do the homework if you mm -hmm. want to, but there was no pressure. Um, and it was unbelievable what they were told that they could just get away with. It's, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things we kept hearing was children resilient. Yeah. Children aren't resilient. They learn resilience. Children are adaptable and they're adaptable to the environment that they grow up in. If they are taught that actually really doesn't matter if you hand that in, right. really doesn't matter if you do that piece of work. We're seeing all of those ramifications. We're seeing that in the number of children that are absent from school. Yeah. We're seeing that in the number of parents who don't send their children to school or parents who are unable to get their children into school. I mean, when Dame Sally is saying she's seeing that at her Cambridge college, then we have to worry. Yeah. I think so, because I think one of the things as well that, that it affected, and we don't often talk about parents, but I think an awful lot of parents before this pandemic saw school as a kind of um, slightly scary place. They didn't really want to get a letter from the school to say your child, child's been absent or your child's taken uh, the morning off without anything. Whereas now, I think most parents go, well, you know, they told us we didn't have to do anything for two years, so the hell with them. And if they want us to turn up, then maybe they shouldn't have shut down for two years. I think you're absolutely right. An officer has said this, as has the Children's Commissioner, that there is a breakdown in the social contract. Yeah. Um, a lot of parents are thinking, well, actually a day off here. Or also parents are often working from home. So when in the past you say a child on a Friday would say, oh, I'm not feeling very well, you'd send your child mm. to school because you know they were just wanting to get, you know, parents are going to stay home. Yeah. But, but in a lot of cases, we have children who have missed so much school that they cannot catch up and therefore they don't want to get into the yes. system. We're, we're only supporting 1% of those children who are struggling with going to school. And, and when Dame Sally says we need to do something now to help them, we absolutely do. We should have been doing this two years ago. So Kevin Collins actually resigned because his plan was rejected and he was the man put in place to look at recovery. We've had two and a half years since the first lockdown. And we need to be absolutely addressing those children who who have real issues getting into school because yeah. we are creating a generational crisis for those children and no society question. as we go forward. No question. And also, I mean, let's look at the, 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 the situation with the exams as well, where they basically absolutely. were just given a grade. Mm. They didn't have to do really do an exam. Uh, yeah. It was all kind of just made up. Yeah, and then you're seeing huge problems with children who are then going to university and having to do exams, although we're also finding that lots of those students at the moment aren't getting their exams marked because mm. the university lecturers are on strike, oh, or they're given 24 hours remotely to do their exams. So we're fundamentally, we're, we're failing our children at every point, yes. um, and, and not giving, we're, we're just not... We are not a society that has focused on, on, on the future and focused on our children and giving them the support they need. Yeah, unbelievable stuff. Well, listen, Arabella, we'll just keep an eye on it and try and keep them honest and try and keep them on the on the sort of beaten track, if you like, uh, to try and come up with some answers as opposed to what they've come up with so far. I take your point about the fact that it's very early stages yet and it's just about pandemic planning, but we need to know more and we need to know more uh, in detail exactly what happened. Arabella Skinner, thank you very much indeed from us for them. A bit of breaking news for you. Uh, in the last few moments, US journalist Evan Gershkovich from the Wall Street Journal has lost his appeal against his pre-trial detention. Uh, he was arrested in March in Russia on spying charges, uh, which he strongly denies, of course, uh, and will not be released uh, at the moment from uh, under house arrest. He's been held uh, for a very long time, uh, and thus far there appear to be no charges whatsoever 
and of course uh, he's known to us here Evan because he is a Wall Street Journal man uh, very much part of this uh, family of journalists in this building here at News UK so uh, we wish him all the best but clearly the Russians in no mood uh, to release him in any way shape or form uh, or to give him a break so we'll have to up the pressure and up the ante uh, on behalf of Evan uh, as best we can. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Medical officer Chris Whitty, remember him? Next slide, please. Uh, and former chief scientific advisor Sir Patrick Vallance are both giving evidence uh, to the COVID inquiry today on the eighth day of public hearings. Let's go and have a listen to see what they're saying. To take part in this committee work, is there a problem developing in relation to the ability of such experts to make themselves available for potentially quite lengthy periods of time? And I think we've been extraordinarily lucky in the UK in having a tradition of the best people uh, doing this, and this has happened over very many years. Um, I think there are two uh, potential threats that we need to be very alive to, uh, the first of which is the university system has got more uh, hawkish, if I can put it that way, about recovery of time and what, what are the people that they're paying, spending their time doing. I see this as a very major part of the contribution of science to society, but uh, obviously for individuals and institutions, that's an issue. So that's a kind of mechanistic one. And then I do think that what occurred during COVID, where the level of abuse and in some cases threat to people who volunteered their time uh, is an extremely uh, concerning one. Uh, and uh, one we should be very firm in saying that the society very much appreciates the work of these people who put in enormous amounts of time, uh, usually at no recompense. You would no doubt have given some considerable thought to that issue because, of course, you were, uh, I'm very sorry to say, on, on the, you were a recipient of, of some of that disgraceful behaviour. Um, is there anything that can be done other than calling it out and, and making it absolutely plain that the inevitable consequence of such sort of abuse will be a diminution in the cooperation and assistance is given by people such as yourself? I think the main thing is to make sure that people who do this understand that their work is very thoroughly appreciated by the great majority of the population, which I think it is. Again, still at quite a high level, May I ask you to consider, please, the, the departmental uh, chief scientific advisor system to which you refer in your witness statement. Is this the system under which, as my lady's heard, each major government department has or should have Chris Whitty there, he's talking about the time when he was attacked by a couple of people in the park. You might remember that story. We'll come back to Chris Whitty in a little while. Let's talk to Ivan, who's in Blackburn, and wants to talk about interest rates. Ivan. Hi, Mike. Hey. All right. Yeah, good, sir. What can I do for you? Very interesting programme, by the way. Thank you. Well, it's interesting uh, times it's we live in, isn't it? Pardon? Interesting times we live in. Well, I'm more interested in what we can learn from the past. Mm. Uh, what strikes me, I was listening to the lady before about the 15% interest rate yes. at the end of the 70s. Right. And I think, you know, you can't predict the future, but you can learn a lot from the past. Yes. Uh, and the 70s, to me, are a direct parallel of what's going on today. Mm. You know, you basically had... Heath, who was a useless Conservative Prime Minister, yeah. who basically had a policy of uh, pay for growth, mm. so he was paying basically what the unions demanded. And then you, you had the, industri uh, the Israeli war, which uh, sent oil prices fourfold. Yes, when sort of OPEC formed and all that, right? That's right. It bankrupted, you know, it bankrupted a lot of countries. The European mm. Union, you know, split, they're all chasing the oil. Uh, you know, trying to get hold mm. of oil because they couldn't get hold of it. Right. 
And then you, you get uh, the Labour government coming in, who basically bankrupted us and went to the International Monetary Fund for a loan. Then they had to improve, in, 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 implement a, a pay rise, yeah. a, a pay freeze. Sorry, uh, you couldn't get a you couldn't get a wage rise at the end of the seventies. No, I mean seventies were a terribly difficult time for an awful lot of people. Uh, interesting point. I'm listen. I'm sorry to cut you short, but I've got to run because we're running late for the news. But but yeah, I mean we should be learning from the past. We should be learning uh, from what happened before because that's what history is supposed to teach us. Um, but will we? And will that be the case in the coming weeks and months? Are we actually going to end up just like we did in the 70s? Hopefully not. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, Coming up in about 20 minutes' time, uh, Ian Collins will be here to tell us what's coming up on his show. But uh, we're going to speak now to Dr Michael Gwillen, scientist and author, a man who has been down into the depths of the Atlantic to see the wreck of the Titanic. Um, We were told today that uh, if there are still any uh, anybody that can be found um, alive, any survivors of the submersible that's been missing for several days uh, in the North Atlantic, where we believe it to be under the sea, that the oxygen supplies on board would have probably run out something like um, nearly half an hour ago. Um, so the search teams are still searching, obviously, searching the surface of the water, searching beneath the water as well. But as of yet, there's still no... Uh, news. There's still no uh, good news to report, I'm afraid. Let's talk to uh, Dr. Michael to see uh, what he can tell us. Dr. Michael, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Oh, uh, good morning there, Mike. It's awfully good to see you, uh, uh, considering the circumstances, yes. obviously. A very sad moment, really. The Titan was estimated to have had a 96-hour supply of oxygen when it began its voyage, um, that should now presumably have, have run out. There doesn't appear to be any any sign of anything, really. Uh, we heard yesterday that there were some noises recorded by one of the uh, one of the craft monitoring the sea, but that was kind of dis- dismissed as probably not coming from, from Titan. Um, you've been down there uh, in the depths of the Atlantic. You've seen the Titanic wreckage that, that they wanted to see. Well, they, they may have seen it as well. Um, Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be down so far under the surface of the sea. Well, Mike, um, it's uh, very hard to relive the situation because I I almost lost my own life down there. But, uh, you know, um, I was uh, invited in September of 2000 when I was uh, the science editor at ABC News to become the first television correspondent to report from the Titanic. My uh, first inclination was to decline because I have a deathly fear of water. I always have my whole life. But I thought this is my job. I'm going to do it. And it it sounded interesting to me. I thought this is an opportunity to educate the people about the Titanic and so forth. And uh, so I went. And the dive went very well. Uh, took two and a half hours to get down. Uh, I was on a, should say, a Russian submarine. We left from Halifax, Nova Nova Scotia. And then we toured the bow. And at the bow... um, we had a moment of prayer uh, for the people whose lives were lost down there. It, it hits you really hard, Mike. Yeah, you I go imagine. down there thinking you're going to see the wreck of a ship, a very famous ship, and that alone is profound. But then when you get down there, it's hard to describe to you the feeling you have. It's almost like you sense the presence of the people who lost their lives, men, women, and children. It's a profound feeling. Yeah. Uh, and everything was fine until we started going towards the stern. 
you will call the Titanic broke into two. The bow went straight down. The right. stern did a somersault, landed on its back, exposed the propeller. So when we were heading to the stern, my eye caught sight of that propeller. Very shiny, sticks out like a sore thumb. Everything else is gray and drab. And then I sensed that my sub was accelerating, and I thought that was rather odd. We should be decelerating. And next thing I know, uh, we collide uh, with the uh, the propeller, get stuck behind the. And I later found out, Mike, that the reason for that was we got caught up in an underwater current that just drove us between the inverted poop deck and the blades of the propeller. Our, our sub was much smaller than the blades of this gigantic propeller. Mm. And so I knew immediately from the collision and huge pieces of the Titanic started falling down on us. Wow. And I was watching all of this through a little eight inch porthole. And I knew immediately that uh, we were in a uh, life threatening situation. So mm. we fell silent. We wanted our pilot, Victor, who's a former Russian MiG pilot, uh, to have all the time he needed and all the uh, concentration he needed in order to try to extricate us because we were in a situation that was very difficult to get out of. It really is an incredible thing to have done. It must still be sort of with you at all times in a way that you must probably never have a day when you don't think about it. It's a, it's a, yes, Mike. And, and in the last 72 hours, it's just become like, uh, I can't even begin to tell you, I've had to relive it. Mm. And uh, it, I, I feel such a kinship to the folks down there, whether they're alive or dead. Right. I, I feel like I'm down there with them because I know right. exactly what uh, they've gone through so yeah it's been difficult and when you are down there is it is it deathly quiet can you hear anything at all it's quiet and it's dark mm. uh, one of the things that surprised me even though I'm a scientist and I know about these things um, you lose sunlight pretty quickly within 400 feet mm. the, it's just it's utter blackness and most of the trip down two and a half hours or so uh, for us anyway um, <clears throat> It's utter blackness. Our pilot every now and again turned on the spotlight we could see, but there's virtually no life down there. You see little rat tail fish, a little uh, very delicate sea star, all of them titanium white because there's no sunlight, there's mm. no color, so everything is white. Uh, and, then, uh, and then when you touch down and he turned on the spotlight, it looked like the lunar surface. It was quite remarkable to think, my God, you know, when you swim in a swimming pool and you hit the bottom of the swimming pool, you think, oh, wow, I'm at the bottom of the swimming pool. But then when you're at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, Mike, you got to think that that is just an experience that I'll never forget. Yeah. It was like landing on the moon. Yeah. I mean, whenever I've done anything under the sea, which has not been much more than snorkeling, really, or, or maybe diving down, jumping off a boat or something like that, there's always a moment when you're coming up where you think, I just really need to get to the surface. I think I'd be, I'd be terrified to be that deep, knowing that you can't literally swim back up. I think that was it. Not only do I have a deathly fear of water, but, you know, tend to be claustrophobic. And I had to s just suck it up when yeah. I, I when I got into that sub. It's a three man sub teardrop shaped, very small, no mm. frills. It was originally designed as a science scientific uh, vessel. But, yeah, you're down there and you're literally buried alive in water, not mm. buried alive in ground. But you're you're in this tin can and two and a half miles of water above you, you can imagine that there is just no way out when you get stuck as we did. You can't call a tow service <laughs> like your car is stuck in the mud and say, hey, get me out of here. Yeah. No, you're literally helpless. And in our case, we're completely at the mercy of the skills of our pilot. And if it weren't for his skills, we would still be down there. I wouldn't be talking to you. And there was a moment when the thought crossed my mind when I resigned to the fact that oh, I was going to lose my life down there. Um, 
the thought crossed my mind, and it may seem a little morbid, but it's just what happened, that I was going to join the people who'd lost their lives down there. I mean, I literally had that thought. Wow, I'm going to, I'm going to join the people who lost their lives down here. I'm going to become like a ghost down here, part of the ghostly Titanic yeah. uh, gravesite. So it's something that is now mindful of these poor five souls down there, whether they're alive or dead. Uh, I, I've, I've been living their hell all over again these last 72 hours or so and it's woke up this morning hoping for good news the noises but as you say um we don't know what are causing the noises if they're still alive they're banging on the inside of the sob it could just be a, a, a piece of metal that's come loose and it's just banging against uh, we just don't know and it's these are random noises uh there's apparently no uh, code people are saying sos well you know what if I were stuck in that sub down there, I wouldn't be doing SOS. Just bang on the thing. Just make as mm. much noise as you can because sound travels fantastically in water, much better than it does in the air. So that's why whale songs can travel halfway around the world. Mm. Sound is a very good conductor of uh, uh, the ocean is a very good conductor of sound. So I would just be making as much noise. But I'd get my shoe, my cups. I'd be just banging away or take shifts. There are five people. Each person does it for, what, 12 minutes, take a rest but just keep the noise coming. So I don't put a lot of importance in that noise, uh, although I'm still hoping, there's always hope. I won't give up hope until the bitter end, but right now it takes two and a half hours, two to three hours to mm. get down there. Mm. So even if we triangulated their location, we'd need three transponders at least, or three uh, hydrophones, three sonar devices, listening devices to triangulate. Then you have to get a submersible that's capable of going to the bottom. When I went down, only the French and the Russians had ships capable of going down to the bottom uh, to withstand the enormous pressure. So at this point, it um, I don't want to say it's hopeless. I never give up hope. They're going to continue the search. Whether we find the vessel or not, Mike, is another story. It took us 73 years. Think about it. The Titanic sank in 1912. It wasn't discovered. The wreck wasn't discovered until 1985 my, by my good friend Bob Ballard, a marine scientist at Woods Hole in Massachusetts. Yeah. 73 years to find a gigantic ship. What are the odds we're going to find something that is the size of a mosquito by comparison right. in this vast ocean? I don't know if we'll ever find the vessel. We may never know yeah. what went wrong. No, it's a sad story, but a fascinating one. Dr. Michael Gillen, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, what an extraordinary, extraordinary day. Um, as we said, the oxygen supply, we believe, uh, will have run out now. Um, and we can only hope that something is found at some point soon. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.